0: Good morning, all. It would be good to keep your Bible open uh, as we look at this passage together. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at uh, the, the book of Malachi, which is perhaps less familiar to most of us. So let's pray uh, that God will teach us something from it. Let me pray. Uh, dear Lord, I do thank you that we can gather together. I thank you that you speak through your word. And I pray that uh, now as we look at it together, that I will speak faithfully. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit is amongst us uh, to open our eyes and to show us the things that we need to hear. Amen. Uh, For those who aren't familiar with Malachi, or perhaps this is the first time you are hearing it today, the whole book is written as an ironic conversation between Judah and God. So the people accuse God of not being faithful. And at the same time, they're completely oblivious to their own unfaithfulness. So isn't that so often us? You know, we have very clear expectations of how we feel God should act in the world. And how God should time his action. He should move quickly. He should move in our timing, not his And so we look around and we see bad people and they seem to be prospering. And good people seem to be suffering. And so in our more frustrated moments, we ask, you know, where is God in all of this? And why isn't God doing something about it? But we don't really place the same expectation on ourselves. So we might express some outrage to our, our friends and family. We might go online and, and click on, on a few links uh, to express how unhappy we are about the world. But so often, that that's kind of the end of it. You know, After that, it takes real effort, and that's quite inconvenient. And it's certainly true that God has infinitely more capacity to act than we do, But so often in God's plan and economy of things, he chooses to act through his people. And quantity has a quality all of its own, which simply means that by ourselves, we might not feel we can do very much. But together, collectively, actually, we have a huge capacity to make a difference and to bring genuine change. And so the book of Malachi is about God being faithful to his promises and a call for his people to be faithful to him. And so today we're going to look at two claims. One is a claim from the people to God, and one is God's counterclaim back to the people and the unifying theme is god is bringing order to his creation and he calls us to recognize our responsibility and our part in it so let's uh, have a look at this passage starting with this theme of where is the god of justice so malachi 2:17 you have wearied the lord with your words how have we wearied him you ask By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? So for a Jewish person, prosperity was a sign of God's blessing. So if those who are doing evil are prospering, then it must mean that God is endorsing the way they live. And certainly for the person sinning, that's a convenient rationale, isn't it? You know, so often we hear people saying today, well, God has created me the way he has created me, so it's not really my fault how I live or what I do. And God doesn't make mistakes. Or perhaps we look at our own successes and blessings in life and conclude that therefore God must be pleased with us. Because if he wasn't pleased, then there would be some sort of punishment and retribution. And so we conclude that God really isn't too concerned with the little sins in our life. So, the religious leaders are right in this passage in recognizing the sin in the world, but they're wrong in thinking that God doesn't care. And they're negligent in not recognizing that actually they've got a responsibility in this. That the leaders of Israel were supposed to call out sin, they were supposed to bring justice to the poor and oppressed. But they have failed to speak out. They have failed to hold people accountable. And so instead of repenting before God, they become God's accuser. And God says, I will be faithful to my promises and a time is coming. So Malachi 3.1. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And we know from Jesus and his words, Malachi is looking forward to John the Baptist. But that's only the beginning, because after this messenger comes, then the Lord himself will come. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, who you desire will come. So John the Baptist comes and he calls people to repent and turn back to God. But he also points people to Jesus. So Matthew 3 says, I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So Malachi is looking forward to a time when God will bring justice. And it's going to start with the Levites. So the Levites were the priesthood of Israel. They were supposed to lead the people in godliness. But now Jesus is going to come and He is going to replace the priesthood. And instead of people bringing sacrifices year after year to pay the price for sin, Jesus is going to come once for all to pay the price for all of humanity. So this is how the writer of Hebrews puts it. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. And so when Jesus comes and dies on the cross, he deals with the issue of a corrupt priesthood. He deals with the issue of sin and then he will come again to deal with the issue of justice. Malachi 3 5. I will come to put you on trial. I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud labourers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners amongst you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord. Do you see God's mercy in it? So God starts by. identifying that he is going to come. He provides a means of escape, that there is justice coming, but he will also provide a solution, not just in his death and resurrection to pay the price for sin, but also in sending the Holy Spirit. So not only does he solve the problem, but he actually opens our eyes to see that we've got a problem in the first place. Because that's the hardest thing, isn't it? If you don't recognize that you have a problem, then you don't look for a solution. And God in his mercy opens our eyes and goes, do you see the sin in your life? Do you see that by yourself that you will stand as an enemy of God? And yet we keep looking around the world and going, why are things so bad? but we still don't see our part in it. We still don't see that actually, you know, it's easy to point the finger out there, but we don't recognise our own sin. And that's part of God's mercy. He actually makes things so bad that we should open our eyes and recognise that not just that there's a problem out there, but there's a problem with us in here. And then... He will bring justice. You know, we look around the world at the moment and sin does seem to flourish. You know, bad things continue to happen. Humans do just incredibly despicable things to other humans. And there just doesn't seem to be any accountability. There doesn't seem to be any justice. But God says a time is coming when I will bring justice. And if a a God-botherer is foolish enough in our culture to stand up and call people to repent, then our society turns around and goes, well, where is God? You know, we've been doing this forever and God doesn't seem to act. God doesn't care or God isn't there. And our difficulty is we've we've mistaken God's patience for not caring. God does care, and judgment will come. And if judgment's going to come to others, then we have to recognise that judgment will come to us. But fortunately, in God's mercy, there's also a way out. That when we repent, when we turn back to Him, He forgives. So that's our first section. God, uh, Judah is accusing God of failing to act justly. And God says, a time is coming. I see the sin in the world. I will act. In the second half of our passage, we have God now turning the tables on Judah and accusing them of their own unfaithfulness. So Malachi 3, 7 to 9. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. So in the Old Testament, tithing was about recognizing God's blessing to you over the past year. And the people were then called to set aside 10% of everything they had to give back to God. And so Deuteronomy 14 gives us a little bit of a snapshot of how it all worked. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all of your fields, all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and olive oil and the firstborn of your herds, and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place He will choose as a dwelling for His name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. then a little bit later in the passage. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigners, the fatherless and the widows who live in your towns, may come and eat and be satisfied, and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. So I think often we think about tithing as simply giving 10%. But in the Old Testament, it was actually about celebrating what God had given you. So it wasn't just about taking it to the temple, but actually sitting down together as a family and taking the first fruits of what God has given you and eat it and celebrate it together. But it was also used to provide for the priesthood, for the worship life of God's community. And it was also to provide for the marginalised of society, the poor, the weak, the widows, the fatherless. If we looked a bit more in Deuteronomy, we also read about free will offerings, where people are called simply to give as an expression of worship to God. And so they gave uh, so that the temple, uh, sorry, the tabernacle, might be adorned uh, as an expression of worship, or uh, to be thankful for particular events of your family. But our situation's a little different, because again, we're not Israel, so you can't simply take God's command to Israel and apply it to ourselves. But certainly as Christians, as followers of Christ, we are called to use what God has given us and to give it generously in God's service. So in the passage that we read earlier today, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. In many respects, it would just be easier for for God to stick with the whole 10% thing, wouldn't it? You know, you go, okay, I get that. 10%, I see what the cash that comes in, divide it up, simple. Uh, But God calls us to live under grace, not law, which means we are called to work it out for ourselves. Under God, recognising that God knows our heart and we are called to give grace generously and so I think when we try to work out what does generous look like it's probably good to think about where does our money go in the first place I think there's probably four things for Christians firstly there are a bunch of obligations aren't there so we have to pay taxes we have an obligation to be good citizens and some of that tax money does go to support things like social welfare and supporting those in need Some of our money is going to support our needs. We do need food, clothing and shelter. Some of it goes to support our wants. And sometimes we confuse our needs and our wants, don't we? We need food, but I want a steak and a fatty pork roast. Uh, I need shelter, but I feel that I would be happier if I shelter somewhere nice, But then there are other wants, like I want to go on a holiday, or I want to go overseas, or I want a new bike. Uh, But they all fit into those discretionary wants, don't they? And then finally, as Christians, we say uh, we want to honour God with our money, so we want to give to God. And practically, we know as Christians, because God works through what we give, that the more generous we are as we give to God, that the more we can use that in his service. So the more we can encourage and build each other up as Christians. And the more we do that, then the more we have to reach out and share the good news in our community. God works through our generous giving. And most of us want to see that happen, don't we? As Christians... We want to see other people come to Christ. We want to see people love Jesus. But so often that good intention gets lost when it comes to giving. Because by the time you've, done, you've dealt with all your obligations and your needs and your wants, so often there is very little left to contribute to God. And if you're anything like me, you're quite good at justifying Uh, why we don't give generously because there are lots of commitments that we have to do and we reassure ourselves that one day down the track when life's a little bit easier we're a little bit more flushed (laughs) with cash that we will be more generous. Of course that time never really quite comes does it because there's always something that comes up and another need and another want and so it always exists just over the horizon. So can I encourage us to, when we think about our money, start with God first. So using uh, my family as an example, uh, we need to start with saying, well, what money comes in through the year? And then prayerfully make a decision about how we will give, as an expression of worship and service, to God. Then we need to work out, well, what's left and how do we live within our means? How do we make sure that we cover our obligations? Uh, How do we make sure we pay our taxes, put food on the table? And then after that, whatever we have left, we are free to do with as we want. And for one person, they might want to spend the money on going on a holiday. For another person, they might want to spend it on a nice watch. Uh, That's your freedom. Uh, God doesn't give us our money to feel guilty the whole time. Uh, We are free to to enjoy it, recognising that we've been generous to God and that God has been generous to us. But it starts with putting God first and certainly as a church and as a leader in this church I have an obligation and the wardens and the parish council have an obligation to make sure that we are good stewards of that money and so whether we're spending 10 bucks or a thousand bucks or a million bucks the question should always be are we using our money wisely in the service of God and for his glory And we won't always agree on that, will we? We'll all have different opinions about how to spend money wisely. And sometimes, even for our best intentions, even for our prayerful intentions, we don't always get to see the outcomes we hope to see. We invest money in ministries and they don't always produce the fruit that we were praying for. And that happens. And when that happens, we need to recognise that, but we continue to ask the question, how do we use our money wisely with the best knowledge that God has given us to serve him and to serve in his plans? Finally, in this section of Malachi, God promises to materially bless those who tithe faithfully. Test me in this, verse 10. Says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be no, there will not be room enough to store it. You know, if you're a prosperity person, you might start looking at tithing as kind of an investment. You know, we're kind of hoping, you know, if I give to God, then God will give back to me and with interest. Uh, I think we need to look. Uh, a little more carefully at what it's saying. Firstly, in one sense, that is God's promise to Israel, not to us. And certainly in Israel's history, God says, I'm going to give you this promised land. It will be a land of milk and honey. It will be a land of thriving. And when you honour me, I will bless you in that land. And there were periods in Israel's history when we saw that that was true. Sadly, they were brief periods, but they were there. But for us, if we're looking at where is our promised land, where will God bless us, we're not looking at the present. Uh, Australia isn't the promised land. It's mighty fine, uh, but it isn't the promised land. Our hope is looking to the future. Our hope is looking to heaven. And so I think uh, Matthew 5 uh, is helpful uh, when Jesus is talking about blessing. Uh, This is perhaps one passage that puts it in perspective. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. As we look at uh, passages about blessing in the New Testament... Almost invariably, it is the blessing of salvation and the hope we have in Christ. And certainly there are blessings in this life, absolutely. And if God blesses you materially, then that's wonderful. Uh, But even then it comes with a warning label because money has this incredible capacity to corrupt And it has an incredible capacity to lure our heart and our mind away from God and away from the hope we have in Christ. I think for those of us uh, who perhaps feel that we have so much less than we would like, that I'd be so much happier if I just had a little bit more, then can I encourage us to be content with where God has placed us? Because worry and jealousy really are two of the most destructive emotions, aren't they? They get us nowhere, they achieve nothing, and they just leave us profoundly unhappy. And so can I encourage us with whatever God has given us, let's be thankful for our circumstances and let's recognise that God has actually provided for our needs, he might not have provided for all our wants, but he has provided for all our needs. And so our first response should be thankfulness. As we look at this passage together, we want the world to be a better place. But we also need to recognise that God has given us a part to play in it. It's not enough for us to simply sit back and call God to act. God bring justice, bring blessing, as if we have no part to play. We are an integral part of God's plan. When God gathers people to himself, he chooses to do it through his people. When God resources his church, he chooses to do it through his people. And so our challenge today is, simply, are we doing our part before God? Absolutely, we should use our money to support those in need. But the greatest thing we can do is invest our money in sharing the gospel with the community around us. So our purpose as a church is twofold. We want to grow as a community of people who love Jesus and we want more people to share in God's blessing. We want more people to love Jesus. And where our heart is, that's where we spend our money, isn't it? So let's pray for our heart first. Let's pray that our heart, our first love, is that we love Jesus and for that to overflow into the rest of life. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we do thank you that uh, even though you bring justice, you also provide mercy, uh, that you sent your son Jesus to die for us on the cross so that we can be restored in our relationship with you. Lord, we pray as Christians uh, that we will serve you in everything that we do. Uh, and Lord, I pray, uh, particularly as we've talked about money today, uh, help us to recognise how, how we each individually can honour you with our money, that we might use it in your service and for your glory. Amen.